The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. This week, my wife Heather and I went on what some people call a date. It was really cool. We went to a concert with uh, one of my favorite bands, who I would I could appreciate it if you haven't heard of them. Um, but they're called the Crash Test Dummies, and I really like them. And I can do the voice of the lead singer, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Sometime at a party, we will probably do that. But um, they have this, uh, one of their albums was called God Shuffled His Feet. And it tells this story, uh, it's, it sort of depicts this um, invent, event where there's this dinner party where God shows up and the people are face to face with God. And it sort of records, or sort of describes what the scene would be like. And it's super awkward because people don't know what to say when they're face to face with God. And, and uh, here's some of the lyrics goes, after seven days, he was quite tired, so God said, let there be a day just for picnics with wine and bread. He gathered up some people he had made, created blankets, and laid back in the shade. The people sipped their wine, and what with God there, they asked him questions, like, do you have to eat or get your hair cut in heaven? And if your eye got poked out in this life, would it be waiting up in heaven with your wife? So there's all these questions, right? And the chorus goes like this. God shuffled his feet and glanced around at them. And the people cleared their throats and stared right back at him. Like, that's it. (laughs) And it's this super awkward situation. Um, It's awkward because the people just ask all of these silly questions um, because they don't know what to do. They're face to face with the one who created the universe. And they have this opportunity to get any question uh, answered and, and they waste it. It's like they don't know what to do with that kind of glory. Now this morning, we're going to be talking a lot about glory. So I want to start by putting a question out to you. What is glory? We talk about God's glory a lot. We we talk about it. We pray that God would be glorified. In fact, I'm going to put it out to you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to just give you a a minute to, if you're comfortable, turn to the person that you came with, whoever you came with this morning. Don't overthink this. Don't try to get the right or wrong answer. Don't don't try to get the right answer, but just... um, Answer this question. What do we mean when we pray that God would be glorified? Okay, don't overthink it. Just go. What do we mean? What are we saying when we, when we pray that God would be glorified? Go ahead. Do you need more time? It's, it's a tricky question, right? How many people, as you're, as you're trying to articulate what, we're, what we mean by God's glory, that God would be glorified, you're realizing, like, it's not an easy question to answer. How many people feel, felt that way? Like, coming up with the words for it, it was not super easy. It's interesting, though, that's it's how we pray that God would be glorified. We pray that all the time. You hear pastors, and you hear in sermons, in Bible studies, and in books, we talk all the time about, what, about God's glory. And I think what we mean when we pray that God would be glorified, something like, God, you deserve the credit, not us. So we pray that you would do something big here, something awesome, so that you would receive honor and fame 
uh, and, and really blow people's minds so that people would worship you. Something, something to that effect. Is that, is that fair? Um, now, John is... Um, we're, we're working through this study of the Gospel of John. And John's aim here is um, that uh, in times when we don't understand what God is doing or what God is saying, we look to Jesus because Jesus reveals who God is. Jesus, in other words, Jesus is what God wants to say. Um, this morning, just like in all, in all of our other weeks, there is a phone number at the top of the screen there. As we go along, if you have a question that comes up, um, you feel free to text your, your question in. I will not name you if you're in my contacts list. But um, at the end of the service, if we have time, I'll, um, we will, uh, we'll meet here to, uh, to answer those questions. So please feel free to text those in. But here at the wedding in Cana, we have God at a dinner party. God is at a dinner party, and this is a scene of glory. Whatever's going on here, John wants us to know, in fact, he says it at the very end, that this is about God's glory. In fact, the key, I think, to understanding what this passage is about is here in verse 11. He says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Okay, so whatever we mean by glory, whatever that means, Jesus shows us in this story. Is that fair to say? Okay, that's, that's important. So as we go on, we're asking the question, what does that glory look like? What does that glory look like? What is his glory? And to see what God wants to say about his glory, I want us to consider this passage um, under three headings. Uh, first of all, a crisis averted. Second, religion subverted. And third, God's glory inverted. It just sort of worked out that way. It doesn't usually, doesn't always, but... So a crisis averted, religion subverted, and God's glory inverted. So let's begin by looking at this, this uh, account in terms of a crisis averted. And to really feel what's gone wrong here, I want us to, we, we need to understand a little bit of background. So the story begins with um, this on the third day. John wants us to know this happened on the third day that this wedding takes place. The third day is the third day of the week. This is Tuesday. It's Tuesday because in back, way back in Genesis, um, in the creation account, uh, the Tuesday is, like the, the third day, is the doubly blessed day. And so in Jewish culture, lots of people would plan their weddings for Tuesdays because it's a super blessed uh, day. Um, so the, the Jewish wedding would, would happen. There'd be the ceremony where a rabbi would declare them husband and wife under this canopy. Um, everybody would be really excited. The husband and wife, now that they're married, they would go off into a, a, a wedding tent and do some married things. And then when they were done with that, they would come back together with the whole crowd and there was a banquet in their honor. And, and often you'd have like half the town or more, maybe the whole town, uh, all your neighbors are invited because this is such a big celebration. And um, I want you to notice that in this story, the wedding, the, the wedding wine runs out on the same day. So the wedding happens, and the wine runs out on, this, on the same day. Not on the fifth day, not on the sixth day. The, the wine runs out on the first day of this wedding feast. And so there's clearly not enough wine, not even close. And this is a massive, massive uh, oversight, a massive wedding fail. Okay? And, and you, you might be wondering, so what? Like, it's just wine. In fact, what is Jesus even doing at a wedding, letting, let alone turning water into wine? Like, this seems like it's kind of beneath him. And you wouldn't be, you're not crazy to think that. In fact, lots of artists through history have, have as they've depicted this story, they show Jesus 
front and center like he's the star of the show, like he's the guest of honor at the wedding. They put him central and, and really pro they figure him prominently into their depiction of the event. But he wasn't. He was not the guest of honor. It says in verse 2, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. They are invited guests. And that's it. They're just welcome there. And that's okay. Right? Nobody there is looking for Jesus to take charge and solve uh, any problems. But suddenly Mary comes in and she says, uh, they don't have any wine. They don't have any wine. And it's not totally clear. Commentators are, are sort of divided on what is she doing here. Is this, I mean, maybe this is a heads up. Maybe she's saying to Jesus, like, I know how you like your wine, but it's gone. Sorry. Uh, and, and that's actually true. And we can talk about that. But, um, but some, people think, and, you know, some people think she's asking something. It seems actually, uh, and I would tend to agree, she, uh, she's asking something of Jesus based on his uh, response. Because he comes back and says, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now some people think Jesus is being kind of disrespectful and dismissive when he calls her woman. Like, listen, woman, look, lady, get off my back. This is not my business. I got better things to do. Uh, like, back off. Uh, and, and people, again, they're divided on what Jesus is saying here, what this conversation means. Um, I tend to think that this is not a, a sign of disrespect. Um, uh, in fact, uh, later on in the Gospel of John, the, the Gospel writer John is going to depict, he's going to show Jesus hanging on the cross. And he's going to look out at the crowd and he's going to see his mother Mary and he's going to see John. And he's going to say, with dignity and respect, woman, behold your son. And I just want you to know, I, sort of, I, I, tend to, I agree with those commentators who see this as something of a teachable moment between Jesus and his mother. Now, my mom is actually here. I, if you hear me in conversation with my mom, I call her Ma. I call her Mama Mia. And if you didn't know better... You might think that that's kind of uh, derogatory or, or, or disrespectful or something. And it's totally not. I actually am crazy about my mom. And I think what's going on here is something like Jesus is responding to her and going like, well, what, do you, what do you think, Ma? The wine is gone. So does this concern us? Do we get ourselves involved with, with problems like this? Is this the kind of thing we, get, we are concerned with? Or do we stay out of this because my hour has not yet, uh, has not yet come? And I want us to pause here and really think about this. Really think about whether, is the importance of Jesus, is it mainly what happened on the cross? Is it only what happened on the cross? Like during his hour? Does Jesus involve himself in trivial, sort of preventable human kind of problems like this? Like, not, like there not being enough wine at a wedding? And we, we're like, doesn't he have bigger things to worry about? Now a wedding is a stressful event. We, we know that. We, we know that if something goes wrong at a wedding, we remember it. I was super stressed at my wedding, and I, all that I had to do was sing a song and do a speech for Heather. I was super stressed about it. And there is this whole, like, industry, this, these channels and channels on YouTube of wedding fails, and we saw an example of that earlier. I actually believe that that was staged, but we can argue about that later. But let's look at this. Imagine being at this wedding. Pay attention to the minister, who is the, the lady on the right, and just watch what happens. And empower you to do the things that you dream. I promise to be your biggest advocate and your best friend. I commit to sharing with you in seasons of and in seasons of scarcity. I promise. 
and they go on with the vows. <laughs> um, so I've like I've been a minister at a at a bunch of weddings. I have never done any. I've never seen anything like that. I've never, I'm so grateful that I have never puked at a wedding in the middle of the vows. Could you imagine? Could you imagine how that how like they would never forget that? And yet, like people get sick, right? People like this is a totally forgivable uh, accident. People get sick. On the other hand, if you run out of wedding wine on the first day of the feast, that's just careless. Totally, it's totally preventable, foolish. Um, it's a mistake. And you, what it means, I mean, it, it looks bad for you. Like, you look cheap. You look um, like you don't care about your guests. And they're not going to forget that. And many of them aren't going to forgive that either. And so from here, we know what happens. Uh, verse 5, we know that... Um, Jesus, or that Jesus' mother, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. He turns the water into the wine, um, and he has saved the feast. He saves the wedding. He, he saves their, their, the, the married couple from shame and from embarrassment. And that is quite a, a gift. That's a huge blessing um, here in this point of need, when they didn't, didn't even realize what was wrong. He has saved them from shame and embarrassment. So this is a huge crisis averted. This is a crisis averted. Next, I want to look at this story in terms of religion subverted. Religion subverted. There is a meaning to this wedding account that goes far, far deeper than wedding wine being provided. Okay? Verse 6, uh, we read that there were these six stone jars, six stone water jars that had been set there for Jewish purification, and each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So you're like, okay, what's the deal with these jars? These are carved stone jars. And they have one purpose. They are to be filled, when, when needed, they are to be filled with fresh water from like a river or a lake and poured into a tub called a mikvah. A mikvah is a part of the, the Passover celebration. So um, these jars are nearby because Passover is almost near. Passover is where we sacrifice a lamb. We have this great feast and in the feast, we, are, we sort of are reminded that we are the chosen people that God has saved for in the, the Exodus. It's a very solemn, very sacred um, ceremony, sort of, sort of celebration. And to participate in the Passover, there is a rule. You need to first become ceremonially clean and, and purified. And to do that, you go into this mikvah. The only way you are allowed to fill a mikvah is with these stone jars. That is their one purpose. And, it's the, and again, the goal is to become ceremonially clean. And, and that makes some sense, that you would become clean before you participate in the Passover. That makes, that's not crazy. That makes some sense. It's actually, it's logical, except that it's not biblical. It's a tradition that crept in along the way. In fact, way back in the book of Numbers in chapter 9, there's a bunch of, there's some people who ask Moses, <clears throat> Moses, what do we do if we become ceremonially unclean because we have touched uh, like a dead relative, are we excluded in the Passover? Are we allowed to participate in the Passover? And Moses says, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to participate. In fact, it's especially for you. What this signifies is especially for you. And so this bath is especially important um, for, for people who are ceremonially, uh, ceremonially uh, um, sorry, the Passover is important for people who are ceremonially unclean. They are not unwelcome. They're not, it's not expected by God that they're going to go through this bath, although that became a rule that people sort of imposed. And these jars, again, these jars, this is really important for us to see, they have one purpose. 
one sacred purpose. They are set aside, they're consecrated to fill these baths. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Fill the jars with water. So the problem is the wine has run out. Jesus says, Take, see those jars? Fill them with water. And you can imagine, now you can imagine how the servants respond. Oh, great. The rabbi's here, and the wine has run out. We thought we were here working a simple, just another wedding banquet. But no, the preacher's here, the rabbi's here. He's got, uh, he wants to prove himself. The wine ran out, so he wants to rub our noses in it. And show us how evil we are. Wine is evil and we're not praying enough and we're not giving enough or we're not you know, as involved in our synagogue as we're supposed to be. Thanks. He's, he's, you know, he's this new rabbi. He's taking us to church. And Jesus is like, no, that is not what this is about at all. He says, take, uh, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Think of the head waiter as sort of the MC of the wedding banquet, okay? And we know what happens next. The water, the, the, these jars get filled with wine, um, something like 180, um, 180 gallons or so of, of wine. This is, works out to be about a thousand bottles of the very, very best wine. That's more than you're going to drink over the course of a week, no matter how, I don't know how many, regardless how many guests you have got. This, is, this water has been changed into wine, and I want to pause for a minute, because again, this is not just, this is not just a miracle. John tells us this is a sign. And signs are different from miracles. A miracle is where Jesus shows up and he does something that proves that he is Lord over creation. But a sign is meant to communicate something. A sign is something we're meant to read and understand. Right? Now years ago, um, some of you know I was a teacher. And I went to teacher's college in Ottawa. And there was a day when I was driving my car along Bank Street in Ottawa... And if you don't know, Bank Street is a pretty busy street. It's kind of like King Street in Hamilton. And it was about 4.30 in the afternoon. And I needed to park and go into a store on Bank Street. And I, I tried to be really careful and pay attention to the signs. And I pulled over at this spot. And I looked at, there were two signs um, describing what was, what, like, sort of referring to this spot. And one of the, the sign on top said that there was to be no parking here between 3 and 6 p.m. There was a sign beneath it, though, that said, there is no parking to the right, but, to the, but it, there was no arrow saying to the left. So I assumed that the bottom one corrected the top one and that I was okay leaving my car there. So I went in, believing that I had read the signs right and pretty sure that I was okay. And so I, I parked there and I went in and I came out of the store uh, to find a huge long line of traffic behind my car, people honking, and a $75 ticket on my uh, windshield. So, see, if you, if you read the signs right, it communicates, right? If you read them right. If you, if you read the signs wrong, um, you miss out on some important thing that you're, you're meant to understand. And here, Jesus has, has taken these sacred pots and he had had them filled with about a thousand bottles of the very finest wine. And John tells us, that's a sign. That's a sign. So it's a sign of what? Well, in Scripture, all through Scripture, you've got wine uh, associated with gladness and celebration and festivals and abundance. And it's true that too much wine can get you into trouble. And you see that in the life of Noah, like at the end of his life. You see that in the life of, of Lot. Um, on the other hand, in Proverbs 3, uh, God says that if we honor um, the Lord with our possessions, he says that your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. 
It's like it's a blessing. Um, in Amos chapter 9, the prophet says, Look, the days are coming. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. So again, wine is associated with blessing and abundance and God's presence. And so if, the sacred, if, this, if there's water put into these sacred uh, jars and it's turned into wine, what does that sign mean? What's Jesus trying to communicate to the people at the wedding and, and to us? And I think it's something that, he, that, is, uh, uh, that we, we hear in Isaiah. Isaiah 25, the, the prophet says this, On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he'll destroy the burial shroud. He'll destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. And on that day, it'll be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is a big deal. This is the first, first of all of Jesus' signs. This is how Jesus uh, lifts the lid on his ministry. This is how he goes public. And this is an announcement that my kingdom has arrived. The beginning of something new has come. It's not the way of religion and ritual, always, always washing and, and never clean. And that's all you've ever known. You've only known man-made rules and, and regulations and, and rituals. And you've never tasted the true joy of the Lord. And I'm replacing all of that. A new thing is here. It's a way of abundance and blessing and beauty and, and, and fine wine. Wedding joy. And, and um, the Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove the people's disgrace. This is Jesus saying, look, this is our God. We've waited for him. He has saved us. This moment is here now. That's the meaning of this sign. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is a big, big deal. One, one uh, author, he writes a commentary on the Gospel of John. He's, his name is F.F. F. Bruce. He says, Christ has come into the world to fulfill and terminate the old order, to replace it by a new worship in spirit and in truth, which surpasses the old as much as wine surpasses water. I love that. Replaces the old, it surpasses the old as much as wine surpasses water. So this is a sign that we have a different way of relating to God now in, in Jesus. The old way, the way of religion, that way is subverted in Jesus. Religion is subverted. And there's a third heading that I want us to consider this story under. It's the, the heading of God's glory inverted. God's glory inverted. What I mean here is that for John, this is a sign of how, he, how God's glory is revealed. How Jesus reveals the Father's glory. And this is important because it's probably not what many of us think about when we think about God's glory. Because here in this story, there's no, there's no dead people to raise. There's no sick or blind person to be healed. There's no demon to cast out. In fact, Jesus, after he does this sign, after he performs the sign, he's not even going to get the credit. Right? He's, he, the, he, he goes and, and the wine is given to the head waiter. The head waiter, um, he is thrilled with the wine. And who does he thank? Jesus? No. He thanks the groom. 
The head waiter goes to the groom and he says, everybody sets out the fine wine uh, first. And then after people are drunk, the inferior, because they're loosened up and they don't have the same sort of sensibilities. And so you can give them the cheap wine that doesn't taste as good and nobody really is going to pay attention. He says, but you have kept the fine wine until now. He's like, sir, I've been to a lot of weddings. And bravo. This is unprecedented. I've never seen anything like this. You have really outdone yourself here. And he's he's giving this to the groom. He's, He's giving credit to the groom. And you can imagine the groom is just like, right on. Yeah, man, no sweat. Got this. Um... In other words, the groom and the, and the bride, has, have, they've been saved from this social disaster. Jesus does the work, and the, the, all the glory, all the credit goes to the groom. And you're like, how is this possibly a revelation of glory? How is this possibly a revelation of God's glory? And, and, and listen, when I was a young Christian, you know, shortly after I had begun following Jesus, I was just, I devoured as much teaching as I could get my hands on. And I, I listened to literally hundreds of sermons um, where I learned that God does everything for his glory. That everything, the universe, cities, houses, money, marriage, parenting, kids, everything exists for God's glory. And, and that's true. And I, I learned to pray in, that in everything that God would be glorified. And here's what I thought that that meant. Here's what I thought that meant. meant. I I thought that meant that he would receive the fame for being big and powerful and sovereign. And and more and more people would see those things and they would worship him. And that's what his glory is. Because he's on top and we're on the bottom. And there was always this question that I I wrestled with. And, And I learned to push it down. And and ignore it. And I wonder if maybe some of us here are doing that same thing. And the question was this. If if everything exists for God's glory, what does he care about me? If if he is doing all of this in order to gather worship and glory, why does he concern himself with me? And, And I got used to believing that if I matter at all to God, I only matter because without me, God is going to get a little bit less glory. That's what I learned to believe. I learned to believe that, um, that maybe I don't matter. That maybe, maybe I don't actually, on my own, deserve his, his love. Maybe I'm not worth his attention unless I can do something really impressive and show him how, what, what a great job I can do so that he gets the glory that he deserves. And I just wonder if that's how some of us think this morning about God's glory. With him way up on top and us way, way at the bottom. And, and hardly even interesting to him. And here, John tells us a story. John tells a story where it's all turned upside down. Where Jesus asks the question, what do these people and their problems have to do with us? Do we concern, you know, do we concern ourselves with these kinds of problems? What, what do we care about this? Um, this sort of thing. Like, and the answer is, actually he does. He cares a, a lot. This stuff has everything to do with Jesus. See, I think if you could ask John, John, you spent a lot of time with Jesus. You spent a lot of time with him. What does Jesus' glory look like? I think that he would say Jesus' glory is the kindness of saving a nameless bride and groom 
on the most, saving them from embarrassment and shame and humiliation on the most important day of their lives. I think that John would say that Jesus' glory is showing up at the point of their greatest need, doing something that they could hardly imagine and, and expect. I think he would say Jesus' glory is taking those sacred pots that are consecrated and reserved for sacred man-made rituals and filling them with the very, very best wine anyone had ever tasted. That's Jesus' glory. It's Jesus taking, Jesus doing all of the work and letting others take the credit. That's his glory. I think John would say, there was a, there was a time when we thought God's glory only meant I'm going to do something great and big, and I'm going, to, I'm going to smite my enemies from heaven with fire. I'm going, to, I'm going to make the sun stand still. I'm going to turn the oceans into blood. And as I do that, I'm going to be glorified, and people will worship me. The nations will be in awe of me. And that's what my glory is. And maybe you're going to get on board, and maybe not. And now we know what glory looks like. Jesus has shown us. Jesus has revealed it. Jesus is what God wants to say about glory. Do you hear that? Jesus is what God wants to say about glory. And so now when we pray that God would be glorified, what we're saying is, God, I'm I'm beginning to forget. I'm beginning to forget that you're good. I'm having a hard time believing it. I'm doubting it. I'm having a hard time believing that you love me. Would you show up at the point of my greatest need and do for me what I never expected? Would you welcome me at your table? Would you share with me the good wine? You are the the big eternal uh, word made flesh, and yet you didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give your life for us. So be glorified, Jesus. Do do your thing. And so I, I hope you see this. It's all upside down. Isn't it? It's all upside down. Everything that we know about Jesus has been inverted. It's all been turned upside down. And so in Jesus, glory is inverted. Glory is inverted. So, now what? What do we do with this? I want to close by giving you three questions that I hope that you'll take home. And maybe over a faith family dinner this week, um, perhaps in your devotional times, you'll really consider these questions. Um, The first is this. What might God do through us if we show up for our neighbors? If we simply show up for our neighbors, what might he do? This is a question of mission. See, Jesus is at a wedding celebration. It's not his. He's not supposed to be on or take charge. He's just present. And while he's there, he he encounters a need that he can meet. And so he does. Um, And I wonder in the same way, what might it look like for us to be so present in the lives of our neighbors and friends and co-workers that we spend the kind of time and we develop the kind of trust and we have the kinds of relationships where we know each other well enough that when a need arises that we can meet, that we're just able to be a blessing and they can receive that and it's not weird. That we can be a blessing and it's just not weird. Um, an author named Joe Rigney, he wrote an article that looks at the wedding feast, the wedding of Cana through the lens of mission. And uh, I love what he said uh, about this story. He says, this is the glorious movement of the gospel. It leads us to Calvary and then sends us back to Cana. 
in hope that by joining men in their joy, they might join us in ours. That by entering into the joy of our neighbors, they might enter into the joy of our master. And so what might God do through us if we show up for our neighbors? Second question is this. How might God's glory be revealed in your life if you just agreed to do whatever he tells you to do? If you just would do whatever he tells you to do. This is simply a question of obedience. This is a story where some anonymous servants uh, are told to do whatever he tells you to do, and they do. And they, they could not have imagined what would happen next. And they didn't need to. They just do it. It wasn't their job to know. In fact, it's not yours and my job to know either. There are some things that Jesus just tells us to do. Isn't that true? There are some things that he just simply tells us not to do. And we are not necessarily going to know all, of the, all the time why. We're not going to always know what the outcome will be, just like these servants. And so how might his glory be revealed if we agreed to do whatever he tells us to do? And maybe, I just wonder, maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe, um, maybe there's something going on in your life. You just, need to be, you just need to be reminded to obey, regardless of what the outcome uh, might be or might not be. Perhaps there's a, there's a door that the Lord is closing that you're trying to keep open. Maybe there's a door that he is opening that you are trying to keep closed. And, or or maybe, you're just, maybe you're just finding yourself at a, at a point where you're just playing games with God. You're just playing games with God. And, and, and I just want you to know, this is not legalism. This is discipleship. He wants us to hear, do whatever he tells you to do. And I can tell you from experience that my joy as a follower of Jesus seems to be connected. There's a strong link between my joy in Jesus and my obedience of Christ. Okay? And so how might his glory be revealed in your life if you agree to do whatever he tells you to do? Last question is this, and then we'll pray. What might change? What might change? Oh, please hear me. What might change if we believed that all Jesus needs is an invitation? What might change if we believe that all Jesus needs is an invitation? And this is a question of, of faith. You notice that Jesus isn't the guest of honor at the wedding. He was simply invited. He was just there. He was included. And when the crisis came, he doesn't hold it against them that he's not the guest of honor. Like Mary doesn't have to go out and get him and bring him into a place where he refused to come because he wasn't the guest of honor. He was simply invited. He was simply there. At some point, an invitation had been offered and he responded. So he's already there. And it just seems to me the gospel works that way. Okay? I think the gospel works that way. Most of us don't begin, we don't begin the Christian life with champion level faith. Having everything figured out. We, we begin this journey of learning what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord. Right? And bit by bit, he becomes more and more our, our Lord. And all we have is an invitation. We've just invited him in. And, um, and we forget that we did. We forget that we did, especially when there's a crisis. And so I don't know if you're facing a crisis this morning. I don't know if there's something going on. Perhaps a mess Perhaps there's, there's some life plans that you had made that, that didn't work out. Uh, maybe, maybe you miscalculated, like you had some kind of goal, and it's, it's taking longer than you hoped it would. Or maybe you had a great vision in mind for what your life would look like at this point, and it hasn't come uh, to fruition. Maybe you feel embarrassed. Maybe you feel ashamed. 
Maybe you feel foolish. Or maybe the, maybe the failure wasn't yours, but it's somebody else's. Somebody betrayed you. Somebody hurt you. Somebody you trusted. And, and so it was their, their failure. And, and now you're like, I'm in crisis mode here, Lord. Like, I do not know what to do. Would you please show up? Like, where are you? Listen, it's not like Jesus is going to condemn you if you only call out to him in the middle of the crisis. That is not how he works. At the same time, how might things be different in your life if you could stop and survey the situation and and, and recognize and realize he's already there? That even this long, after you first invited him into your life, he's still there. All you had was an invitation, and he accepted, and he is there. If you, can, if you have eyes to see him. And that is his glory. He's still there. He never left you. He hasn't forsaken you. That is his glory. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Thank you for listening.